0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 21. This morning, if you don't have a Bible with you, there is a paperback Bible. Underneath one of the chairs in front of you, it's on page 492. Mark chapter 8 on page 492. As always, it would be very helpful to you if you have a Bible open before you as we go through this text. <clears throat> as I get older, um, one of the things I find is that my memory is not quite as strong as it, as it used to be. I'm not sure it was ever super strong, but it's not as strong as it used to be. And One thing that I am very thankful for on, on my phone is the reminder function. So, um, I've got a lot of reminders in my phone. In fact, just before the sermon here, I counted up how many reminders I have, and I've got 29 reminders. So, I'm either really busy or really forgetful, um, probably a combination uh, of both, Uh, but I find this super helpful. I really rely on my phone to help me uh, remember things. My my wife does not really prefer to be reminded through the phone. She does it the old-fashioned way with post-it notes. So all over the house, particularly on the bathroom mirror, on our computer, there are post-it notes. Call this person, pick up that person, just reminders, and we find these things very helpful. Um, The task of remembering is very important in our lives, isn't it? And sometimes um, it's limited by our cognitive abilities, but other times we need to Be intentional about remembering because remembering things can be good for our soul. Sometimes remembering things can be good for our our character. There's something essential about who we are as a people based on what we remember. And so sometimes you'll see maybe bumper stickers or t-shirts and they'll have this phrase on it and it says, never forget And sometimes you'll see that in relation to 9-11, or you might see that in relation to the Holocaust, or to just some significant event of supreme importance that we know we can't afford to forget because it was so important. And so we tell each other, never forget. And you know what? In the Scriptures, that is given to us as a very important discipline and task for us as Christians. In fact, in Psalm 77, the psalmist says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. It is important as a Christian to develop a good memory. And something I've said to you many times before and it's worth repeating, and it is this, that very often the cause of a weak faith is a bad memory. And the cause of a strong faith is a good memory, remembering the deeds of the Lord, Remembering what God has done, remembering who God is, remembering what God has promised to do, that's the pathway to a strong faith. And that's really the subject of this passage we're looking at here in Mark chapter 8. We're returning to the sermon series on the book of Mark called The Servant King. We've been away from Mark for a little while through the Advent season. We just finished a short series on what it is to be human. And so we're just going to return here in Mark, right where we left off. We completed at the end of chapter 7. You might remember the story of Jesus healing the ears of the deaf man. And so now here we are picking up chapter 8 with the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Very famous story, probably many of you familiar with it. And uh, we're going to see what this has to say to us about the task of remembering. So if you're able to stand, do so at this time. And let me read these verses to us, Mark 8, 1 through 21. <clears throat> begins like this. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, He called His disciples to Him and said to them, that's referring to Jesus, And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them, and they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now... Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not understand? Holy Spirit, again, we call on You and pray that You'd open our eyes and give us ears to hear as we look for wonderful things in Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So, as we're returning here to uh, the book of Mark, I want to remind you of uh, the way this book is structured. Uh, The book of Mark really falls into two halves, and um, the first half of the book is really concentrating on showing us Jesus' identity. The second half of the book is showing us Jesus' mission. You could say the first half of the book is about who Jesus is. Second half of the book is what Jesus did or what Jesus has come to do. First half of the book is about Jesus' person. The second half of the book about Jesus' passion. We are just about at the halfway mark. We are just about to transition from the first to the second half. The major point of transition occurs later in chapter 8 when Peter gives his confession To Jesus, and so we'll be getting there in a couple of weeks. But what we have been looking at so far through these first eight chapters of Mark is Mark's attempt to show us how important it was for Jesus to get people to understand His identity, to understand who He is. Every single passage is pointing to that some way. It's trying to get you to answer that question. Who do you say Jesus is? And so the main point that has been communicated in the book of Mark is is this, and I think we can summarize it in this way, that this is what Mark and Jesus want you to get, that Jesus is the Son of God who can satisfy the longings of all people. That's been the repeated emphasis, the repeated lesson over and over again. Jesus is the Son of God who can satisfy the longings of of all people. And the question that is repeatedly asked is, do you get it? Do you understand? Do you see this? And so, that shows up again in this passage in chapter 8. So, let's look at this story. Verse 1, great crowd comes after Jesus, gathered around, listening to Jesus teach. And we see that Jesus is overcome with compassion, and the reason for the compassion is that He sees that the people are hungry. They haven't eaten. They've been with Him for three days, it says here in verse 2. Apparently, they didn't pack a lunch. There wasn't a McDonald's around the corner, and the people are hungry. The crowds are hungry. And so Jesus looks at them, and he has this great compassion. That word from compassion is not frequently used. That literally means entrails or, or organs. It's referring to something deep within Jesus. It's like this gut reaction that Jesus has, this attitude of compassion toward these people who are hungry. And Jesus does not want to just send them away and say, okay, let's just disperse and you can all go find food on the way home because He realizes that uh, if they do so, they might faint on the way, verse 3 says, because they are in a desolate area. That's what the disciples acknowledge at the end of verse 4. They're out here in the middle of nowhere and there's really no place for them to go. It might be a little bit like what it is... uh, You probably experience you're on the interstate and you're driving and you notice the gas gauge getting a little low or maybe you're getting hungry and then you hit this stretch where there's just nothing at any exit and you just pass one exit after another and there's none of those signs that says McDonald's or Shell or Marathon and you're starting to wonder how long is this going to last and you realize you're in between two cities that are very far apart and there's just no place to go. That's kind of the situation the crowds are in here. There's just nowhere where they can get any Food or help. And so Jesus is filled with compassion for them. And so he wants to feed these people. And um, the disciples in verse 4 have this question then for Jesus well, how can we feed these people? We don't have anything. This is a desolate place. We don't have any resources here to take care of these people. Now, if you've been with us through this series, you ought to remember something. Right now, you ought to remember that this same thing happened just a little while ago. Do you remember that? I know we have the Advent series, so it's been a few months, but back in chapter six, there was the feeding of the 5,000 people. And in that account, Jesus fed everyone. In fact, there were leftovers. That's how much, how abundantly he was able to feed everybody. And so here are the disciples. You would think that might come to mind <laughs> as they have another situation where there is a large number of people to be fed, but it doesn't. But what we have here are, are two incidents, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. And it might strike you as a little odd. Why are there these two feedings? And it might even seem to you like, did Mark get mixed up here? And in fact, there are scholars who say that's exactly what happened. Mark is using something that's called a doublet. That is where you take one thing, an incident that really happened, and then you just kind of reformulate it and create another incident for literary purposes and and write this. But it's not a real historical event. It's entirely fictitious, something made up. And it's all based on the one event that did happen. That, that's what some scholars, the liberal scholars, will say. that There's not two different incidents here. There's only one. This is a doublet. But that, that is just not the proper way to interpret this. So we've got to think, why would there be two? Why would there be two? And how do we know there's not one? Well, one of the reasons why is you'll notice, if you pay very close attention to the details of the text, there are a lot of differences between the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000. So, for instance, you look at verse 5, Jesus asked, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. Well, back in the feeding of the 5,000, in chapter 6, they had five. In this depiction here, in chapter 8, Jesus directs the crowds in verse 5 to sit down. Implication is, He just told the whole crowd, just just sit down. If you go back to chapter 6, feeding of the 5,000, There's a division of labor, so to speak. They're divided up into fifties and hundreds. So there's more organizational purpose in mind as the crowd is seated. And one of the reasons why that probably happened is because if you skip down to verse 9, you'll see that it says there were about 4,000 people. 4,000 people. If you go back to chapter 6, verse 44, in the feeding of the 5,000, It says there were 5,000 men. And many commentators will point out that if it were 5,000 men, that means women and children weren't included, which means the feeding of the 5,000 was probably more like the feeding of the 15,000 or the feeding of the 20,000. That there were probably a lot more present in the feeding of the 5,000. But this doesn't designate specifically men here in chapter 8. It just says people. So. There's a much smaller crowd here. 4,000 is still a lot of people, but 4,000 is a lot smaller than 20,000. And so since there's a smaller group, perhaps no need to divide them up into 50s and 100s. We also see uh, the way the fish are described. Verse 7, it says, small fish. might sound like an incidental detail because in the feeding of the 5,000, chapter 6, it just says fish, but here it's small fish. It's actually a different word. It means something more like sardines. So, it was a different kind of food provided here in the feeding of the 4,000. And we also have a different amount of leftovers in verse 8. We see there's seven baskets here in the feeding of the 4,000, back in the feeding of the 5,000. It says there were 12 baskets left over, which would be consistent with there being a larger crowd and more leftover. So, lots of differences here. There's others that we could talk about. But there's no reason for us to conclude that these are referring to the same event. Two different feedings happened. And perhaps the, the, the biggest clue that we can get to why this would be happening is, is this. And it's because this feeding in chapter 8 of the 4,000 is happening in a different place. So go with me back to chapter 7, verse 31. 731. Then he, that's Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. You might remember from a few sermons ago that we learned that the Decapolis is a Gentile region. So here's a map uh, on the screen, and you'll see this is the the Sea of Galilee, and um, this is where the events in Mark that we've been reading about for the last several weeks have all been taking place. And it's just like Jesus and the disciples are just kind of like going back and forth across this lake. Well, you see Decapolis is right here. It's kind of southwest or southeast of the Sea of Galilee. Decapolis is largely a Gentile region. Maybe not exclusively, but largely a Gentile region. That's the feeding of the 4,000 here. The feeding of the 5,000 took place over here in a largely Jewish region. And so it would seem that that's part of the point of having two feedings. And that's why I am saying that the main point about Jesus' identity that Mark is trying to get to us is that Jesus is the Son of God who can satisfy the longings of all people. Not just Jews, but the Gentiles also. Not just the insiders, but the outsiders too. Not just those who have lived an upright moral life, but those who have lived an outwardly immoral life. Not just those who consider themselves religious, but the irreligious also. Not just for the conservative people, but for the liberal people. And not just for the heterosexual, but the homosexual. Not just for the good people, but the bad people do. It's for all people. Jesus says, I'm here to satisfy the longings of everybody, no matter who you are, or what you've done, or where you've been. It's not like the Jews have any particular advantage to have Jesus Jesus satisfy their longings because they're on the in group. Jesus goes across the lake to a Gentile region and says the same thing. I'm here to satisfy any who will come to me. And that applies to all of you today as well. I don't know what your background is. I don't know how often you've been to church. I don't know what your political beliefs are. I don't know how many bad or good things that you've done in your life. I don't know, and I don't really care. All I know is that if you come to Jesus, He will satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. And so, you get to chapter, or verse 8, and look what it says. They ate and were satisfied. (laughs) They were satisfied. And not only that, but they had seven baskets Leftover. I mean, Jesus just provides abundantly. He's a God who gives leftovers to you. He doesn't just barely meet your needs. He meets your needs in an overflowing and abundant way. And this is what we're all looking for, right? We want our hearts and our souls to be satisfied. We all deal with this emptiness of living in a life that seems meaningless and hopeless. You'll see this all over the place when you hear famous, rich, People talk about what fame did for them. There's a guy named Tony Hale. He was an actor on the show Arrested Development. And he was talking about how he was just waiting for that first offer to come to him, uh, a sitcom offer so that he could act and become famous and, and, and get rich. And he waited for a long time. He was so anxious to get it. And finally, it came to him and he started uh, acting on the show Arrested Development. And he said, quite frankly, it was a disappointment. And he said this, he said, fame did not satisfy the way I thought it would. And you don't have to look far to find other testimonies of this same kind of thing. John Lennon said the same thing. Cameron Diaz has said the same thing. Tom Brady has said the same thing. I got the money, I got the fame, I had the women, I had everything. And I was empty and joyless. It's because these things are not intended to satisfy the soul. Jesus is intended to satisfy your soul. And what we have here in Mark chapter 8 is a fulfillment of the call to worship that we heard this morning. So I'll just read it to you again in in this context for people who are looking for, for fulfillment and purpose and meaning in life. Here's what God says. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to have resources. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. It's given to you for free. You don't work for it. It's given to you for free if you'll take it. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread, your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. That's the call to all of us today, to come to me. To Jesus, to come to God through the work of Jesus. C.S. Lewis has, has said this very well also. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That I, I was made for something different, something bigger, something more transcendent, and that is knowing Jesus as Savior. That, that's what the whole first Part of Mark is trying to communicate and to get through to us. Now, as this passage goes on, what we're going to see are a couple of responses to that, to this identity of Jesus being expressed. There's two responses, and neither of them is good, okay? So, there are two two problem responses. The first one is the problem of rebellion, and that's verses 11 through 13. This is the Pharisees Verse eleven, feeding of the four thousand is done. Pharisees come not to be fed, but to argue. Do you see that? Pharisees came and began to argue with him. That uh, they're trying to test him. It says at the end of verse eleven that test is not like let's see what you know, Jesus. It's test in the in the in the sense of putting forth a stumbling block or an obstacle. That There's rebellion in their hearts against Jesus, these, these Pharisees. And what they ask for in verse 11 is a sign. They, they want a sign. They don't want another miracle. They've seen tons of miracles. They've seen Jesus do all kinds of things. They're not asking for him to, oh, you've fed 4,000. Well, let's see you feed 10,000. It's not that kind of thing. It's, he wants a, they want a sign from heaven. They, they, want, they want God to somehow just come out of the clouds and give direct confirmation about the authenticity of Jesus' ministry. They they just want God just to come out and say, yes, Jesus is my man, even though God has done that actually during Jesus' baptism. But this is what the Pharisees are looking for. They want want proof. They want absolute proof that Jesus is who he says he was. And so how does Jesus respond to this? His answer is, Absolutely not. I'm not giving you proof. It's not the way I work. Look what he says in verse 12. We, we get this, he sighs. I mean, you can almost imagine what that must have been like, just that kind of rolling of the eyes and just like, oh, man. These Pharisees. Oh. Deep sigh. The the word actually means groaning. He kind of groans in his spirit. Why does this generation seek a sign? (laughs) Truly I say to you, no sign will be given. No. And, you know, maybe you've said that. I'm not going to believe until I have proof. I mean, people say that all the time, don't they? Why can't God just prove it to me? Why can't he just come out of the clouds and show himself to me? Then I would believe... Look, lots of things have happened in your life that are sufficient for you to believe, not the least of which is the fact that throughout the created order, it is a testimony to the beauty and excellence of God. The creation itself is proof that God exists. That's what Romans 1 tells us. But here comes these Pharisees. They want some kind of a direct sign, and the lesson or the concern that Jesus seems to have here is that or the problem with asking for proof is is that proof does not require faith. Any request for proof means faith now becomes unnecessary, and the Scripture says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. What honors God, friends, is not your demand for proof, but your faith when you don't have the proof. That's what honors God. Now, I'm not saying faith in the absence of evidence... There's plenty of evidences given to us, strong reasons to believe and put trust in God. I'm not saying faith in the absence of evidence. That would be somewhat irrational. I'm saying faith in the absence of proof. Faith is the conviction of things not seen, it says. What God wants is your faith when you don't really know what the future holds. Your faith when you don't know how things are going to work out. Your faith when you don't have all the questions answered. That's the faith that honors God. That's what He desires. That's how we please Him, trusting Him. Mary and I have started an obedience class with our our puppy, and last week we got to the class, and um, I forgot to bring the checkbook to pay for the class. And uh, we don't live far from where the class takes place, and so Mary says, "I'll, I'll go home and get the checkbook. And the teacher looked at us and said, no, you don't have to. I trust you. And I got to tell you, I felt honored that this dog teacher, who we don't really know that well, trusted us to bring our money the next time. We were honored. God is honored when you trust him in the absence of proof. There's no badge of honor in demanding a proof for God's existence. And here is Jesus responding with the most emphatic denial. To a request for proof. It's because of the rebellion in the hearts of the Pharisees. So, the second problem that we see responding to the feeding of the 4,000 is the problem of remembering. Problem of remembering. So, verses 14 to 21, disciples and Jesus, they get in the boat and they suddenly realize, verse 14, um, that they only have one loaf of bread with them. Only one loaf. Now, Jesus seizes on this opportunity and turns this into a spiritual lesson. And so in verse 15, He cautions them and He says, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So He's using bread, yeast, leaven here metaphorically. Of course, yeast or leaven is um, what ferments in, in bread. It causes the dough to rise it's something that's all pervasive in the dough, and a very small amount affects all of the dough. And so, Jesus is, is using this illustration um, as a way of saying that this is what the hardness of heart of the Pharisees is like. This is what unbelief is like. It, it might seem small, it might seem tiny, but it can affect everything. It's contagious. It spreads fast. Unbelief and doubt and hard-heartedness spreads fast. And Jesus seems to think here that the disciples are about this far away from having the same kind of hard-heartedness as the Pharisees. And so, He warns them. He says, watch out, be careful. This is contagious. You know, we hear a lot of stuff in our culture now asking questions about why so many evangelicals are leaving the faith. Have you seen these stories? They're all over the internet. Why are so many young people in particular leaving the faith? Some distrust institutions, some don't like social stands the church takes. Some are offended by scandals in the church. But one thing that's never really talked about is the way that unbelief is contagious. Watch out. This is a warning for all of us. There's something trendy about it. There's something appealing about it to many people, and we see one person abandon the faith, and we start thinking, maybe I can do that too. Jesus is warning the disciples. He's warning us, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Well, the disciples here totally miss the point. They don't get the spiritual implications here. And so, verse 16, they go right back to talking about the literal bread, the fact that they have no bread. And so, again, I think we just have to try to notice how comical this is. These disciples who saw Jesus feed 5,000 And then they saw Jesus feed 4,000. And there they are in the boat with one loaf of bread and the bread of heaven sitting right next to them. And they're wondering, how in the world are they going to get fed? I mean, talk about blinders. Talk about missing the point. Talk about not getting it. That's what Mark is trying to reveal to us. that The disciples don't see it. They don't get it and it's meant to be a warning or a challenge to all of us because you know what? Very often, we don't get it either because how often is it that we find ourselves in maybe a similar kind of crisis? Maybe it's not just one loaf of bread, but it's a financial problem, it's a health problem, it's a personal problem, it's not as much money in the bank as you thought. It's the equivalent of having one loaf of bread. And instead of meeting that with faith, what happens? We forget. We forget what God has done. We forget His promises, and our bad memory leads to a weak faith, and we panic, just like the Pharisees, or just like the disciples. We we, we panic. We we forget what what God has done for us. And so, Jesus has to help them. And so, He goes through here in verses 17 to 19. He says, why are you talking about you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes, don't see, ears, you don't hear? There it is at the end of verse 18. Don't you remember? And then he reminds them, I, I fed five thousand people. In verse 19 he tells us. Then in verse 20, and I just fed four thousand people. Don't you remember? It's like Jesus is saying, you've seen me do these things for others, but now do you trust me to do these things for you? And again, that's a question we all have to ask. We've seen God work. We Outwardly, we know He's powerful. We know He's faithful. We say these things. We might even teach these things. And then the trouble comes to our doorstep. And like we might believe that God can do these things for others. This is the question, though. Do you believe He can do it for you? Do you believe that He has compassion for you? Do you believe that He can care for you? And friends, if you exercise memory, faith memory, you you will remember things like that time when you weren't sure how you were going to pay the bill and then the money came in at the right time. And you'll remember the time that you were so discouraged and depressed and then that card came in the mail or that friend called at just the right time and and picked you up. And you'll remember about those times when you couldn't get pregnant and you were praying and thinking it would never happen, and then it did. And you will remember about that time you were worried about the surgery, thinking it was going to go badly, and it actually went better than you ever imagined. And you will remember New Life as a congregation, the number of years when we have presented a budget for the coming year, and we have thought that just seems absolutely impossible, and then just enough money came in at the end of the year to meet our budget. Do you remember? Do you remember when that happened? Do you remember all the times that God has been faithful? He's shown up, He's blessed, He's been kind? Now, you might be saying, well, yeah, I remember lots of times, but there are some times when I remember... That he didn't show up. There, there are certain things that he hasn't met. Yeah, okay, I grant you that. I'll just tell you this, the story's not over. Let's wait and see what happens. Do you remember all that God has done for you? Do you exercise your brain to think about those things? Maybe you ought to put those on your phone as reminders. Maybe you ought to put post-it notes about those things on your mirrors all around the house to help you remember. For those of you doubting God's love, for those of you wondering if God cares, for those of you unsure if the forgiveness that Christians talk about could ever really be yours, don't you remember that Jesus died on a cross for you? Do you remember that? Do you remember that He rose from the dead? Do you remember that He's overcome the powers of death and sin? Do you remember that the Scripture promises that if you trust in Him, He will forgive you of all your sins and pronounce no condemnation on you. Jesus has taken care of the 5,000. Jesus has taken care of the 4,000. And in fact, Jesus has taken care of millions of people who belong to Him, and He will take care of you as well. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You are a God who is trustworthy. Would You please give us good memories bringing to our mind all the things that you have done for us in your grace, that we might walk by faith and trust you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.